All right. Well, I trust that we are live. I, I hope we are. And uh, so, shalom, everybody. Salutations. Bonjour. We are going to be reading tonight from a book called He Walked the Americas. And I have this right here. I I hope we don't have any surprises tonight. You never really know. Uh, this came in the mail uh, from Rebecca. I crossed out her address. So you can't see it on, on the internet, but it does say Arizona there. So I'm going to open this up and I'm going to read from it. Hopefully, hopefully, Rebecca, there aren't any surprises here because we are, of course, live. Not that I can't uh, do a reshoot. And hopefully I don't make a fool of myself opening this. Uh, nothing quite like opening up a box and getting a new book. There she is. He Walked the Americas. I'll be reading from this copy tonight. And as I was explaining before we went live, that uh, I, because I do not own the copyrights on this, we, we've got a really sweet deal to uh, sell over 60 copies of this book. And uh, at least 40 of them went out to the TUC Book Club members. That's the selection of the month uh, for June. He walked June 2023. He walked the Americas, but we do have some left in the store if you would like to buy yourself a copy. And I'm going to get right to it. So unfortunately, I don't have a like I said a PDF to share, and you can't you know follow along. If you do own a book copy, um, please do follow along. Or you know if you're not watching live with me right now. You can go uh, buy one in the store and then wait for it to arrive in the mail in a couple weeks, a week or two, and then watch the video. All right. I am going to be starting on page 14. The I think this is called, this is from Polynesia. It's called the God Wakia. Right here, right? Page 14. Once in the days long vanished, with three great ships which had sailed from the sunset lands, came white-robed Wakia, the fair god who healed the injured, raised the dead, and walked on water. He came to an outlying island of the Tahitian group, where two tribes were fighting bitterly. Now, I want to... I don't want to pause a lot tonight, but I just want to point out here that this uh, this white-robed Wakia, the fair god or the fair Elohim, he comes with three ships. All right, so he has a whole entourage. Like he's not sailing these three ships himself. He's coming with three ships with a bunch of dudes. How hundreds? A crew of hundreds? So think about that. And this ties in, of course, uh, perfectly with the Millennial Kingdom. The fact that uh, I think that this happens uh, when the Millennial Kingdom had already started. And here he has, uh, you know, probably dudes with armor and, you know, a whole a whole crew um, coming with him. They all know who he is. And he's, go he's going to be going around North America, South America, Central America, and, you know, giving them the gospel of the kingdom. 
Now, 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 however, the Polynesians are all one people, ancient, anciently calling themselves Maori from New Zealand to Easter Island off the South, uh, South American coastline. They were the Vikings of the sunrise, rowing their long boats over the trackless ocean, guiding themselves by the stars of the heavens and speaking one language from Hawaii southward. They used the same plants, kept the same animals and sang the same songs of the ancients. One of these was of the god Wakia. So he's talking about a time now when all these nations were all, uh, these Pacific Islander nations were all aligned with each other. And they had, they had a mutual affection for this Wakia figure. To an island where men were fighting for the possession of the good land came three ships with giant sails, like enormous birds with wings uplifted, glowing goldenly in the dawn light. Suddenly frozen to immobility were the warriors as the ships moved around a jutting headland. What manner of monsters are these with the great wings? Perhaps they have come to devour the people. Forgotten was the heat of the battle. Friend and foe stood facing seaward, weapons clutched in paralyzed fingers, staring in wide-eyed wonder. The ship's oarmen, whose paddles looked like a hundred centipede legs touching the water, rested now from their task of moving the giant monsters forward. Then the islanders saw something white moving towards them. Apparently, it had come from the great birds, and it glided easily over the water with the rhythmical ease of a man walking. As the spot of white came closer, they saw in amazement that this was a fair god, man-like in form, but unlike their people. Soon they could see him clearly, the gold of the dawn light shining behind and around him, making a halo of his long curling hair and beard. They saw the foam-like swish of his garments. As he came up on the wet sand, the warriors stared in fright at his garments. They were dry. Now they knew that a god stood among them, for none but gods can walk on water. So the scene here is this big, huge battle. These tribes are duking it out. And then, of course, these are, you know, these aren't necessarily pagans, right? These are, this is an advanced society. But they see these three ships come up, and the, the three ships stop out there, and one, one man alone comes walking on the water up to the shore. From his garments, so foam white, they looked to his pale face and then into his eyes. They were strange eyes, gray-green as the depths of the water, and like it, ever-changing. Now these eyes flashed with anger as he stared about him and looked upon the injured. A god had come from the sea to walk among them, and his first look was that of anger. The warriors fell down as one man and began an old chant anciently employed to a God for forgiveness. When they dared again to raise up their own eyes, they saw him going among the injured and, di and dying who, um, among, I'm sorry, they saw him going among the injured and dying who arose from their pain to find themselves well of body as soon as his hand or his garments had touched them. So now he's literally going around and healing everybody in this battle. Thus on this never to be forgotten day, came the beloved Wakia to live for a while among the people. When the villagers arrived with presents, creeping on their knees toward him, 
he signaled the ships. Small boats now left the great birds and brought up brought other strangers. These men, though something like him in features and like him bearded, were different in two ways from the god Wakia. Most plain to see was that their garments were not white but colored. But there was something beside this material difference. It was the way these friends looked upon their leader. In their eyes, one could see their reverence. In their strange speech, one could feel their great love. Friend and foe among the Polynesians now set about to entertain the strangers, putting forth their choicest, uh, choicest dishes, making welcome with song and dances. They invited the strangers to partake of the great feast. They had planned an entire night of merrymaking, but alas, as the sun began to paint the western sky with the colors of the orchards hanging in profusion in the forest, they could see that the strangers were preparing to leave them. The sadness they had felt at this discovery was suddenly reversed when they saw the strangers bidding tearful farewell to the god Wakia. Scarcely had the people dreamed of this good fortune. For now it was becoming very obvious that the, the god Wakia was planning no journey, but would remain among them. Respectfully, at a short distance stood the people, while Wakia comforted the tearful strangers. They saw him point to the direction of the sunrise and wondered among themselves what he might be saying in his strange language. Then after many further embraces, they watched the strangers enter the small boats and row back to the great bird ships. As Wakia stood there on the sand watching sadly, the chief stepped up quietly and pointed to a high point which looked over the jutting headland around which the ships were now passing. Wakia nodded quickly, followed the chief and some of the people to the sun-painted high point. There they together watched the three ships move into the sunset, fading at last into the sea of beauty. Only then did they return to the village, and the great ships were never more seen by the tribesmen. Very quickly, Wakia learned Polynesian. The people were amazed at the speed of his learning. So right there, there's, there's, there's two things in this story that stick out to me that I think is legitimate. Number one, he had to learn Polynesian, all right? So if I'm looking to concoct a story about Yahusha HaMashiach coming to North America, you know, I'm going to be like, oh, he already knew all the languages. He could just go speak. No, no, this guy, this, this prophet, he had to learn the, yeah, he learned it quickly, but he had to learn the language. So I find that to be uh, a, a point in the favor of this. Number two, as I mentioned, he came with a whole entourage. And it's interesting that they already knew their marching orders, that they were to drop him off make sure he was secure, and then they're all crying as they're leaving him because they don't want to leave him. And they know that he, they're going to be departed from him for some time. It's almost like, yeah, so uh, I was going to say, it's almost like Aslan in the Narnian books or something like that, right? Like, you know, you see him for a season and then he's gone, right? It's the same thing. They knew that their time with him was coming to an end and that he would be amongst other people. The people were amazed at the speed of his learning as the days, as the long days passed, he began to teach the tribesmen. He told them of the one God or the one Elohim who ruled the heavens, who spoke through the volcanoes and who breathed on the ocean. To him, war was not of his making, 
for his law was love one another. For Wakia, they gave up war and the sacrifice of children, which had kept down their populations so they would not overeat their islands. Then the men carried him with them, taking Wakia from island to island so each one would meet the strange fair God whose hands were miracles of healing. Many then were the songs of Wakia and many the legends, which down the long vistas of time have been forgotten. Yet his name has never been forgotten. Wakia had one strange custom. Every morning before dawn, he would rise and pray toward the dawn star on some high point facing seaward. When they asked him why he did this, he said that even so would his friends be praying in that far off land across the ocean. The people remembered, thought of that day when he had come to them, of his friends who had wept when they were leaving and how he had pointed for them toward the sunrise heavens. Finally, the fair God knew well all of the islands and there was not one where he had not landed, feasted with and taught the people. It was then that he looked more often toward the direction of the dawning and asked questions about the lands of the dawn star. The people were not entirely unacquainted with the continent lying eastward. Did they not have the yam to eat and call it by its ancient South American name? Yet they were loath to lose the healer, this strange God who answered to the name they had given him, Wakia, the fair God of the ocean. As long as he could, they tried to dissuade his growing wish to travel eastward. Yet they loved him too much to, to deny his desire. And so preparations were made for the long journey to be made in the boats of the mig migrations. Through their tears, the people watched him take his seat in the long boat, while one child called out in a voice, broken by sobbing, Are we never again to see you, Wakia? In his melodious voice, the fair god made answer, One day you will see me returning, even as I came through the light of the dawning, if you remember to keep my commandments and always love one another. The canoes of many rowers carried much food and water. Through wind and storm, they stayed together, keeping each other in sight in the daytime and at night by alternate chanting. Thus from the islands and into the sunrise rode the long boats carrying Wakia, beautiful creature of peace and laughter, whose curling brown hair trapped the red gold of sunlight, and whose strange level eyes held the sea's deepest master mystery, changing like the water in lights and shadow. So the fair god moved into the dawn towards the lands of the dawn star, sped onward by the chants of farewell sung by the sorrowing people. And since that day, though some have said that he is sometimes seen in spirit, Yet in the flesh, they are still waiting for him to come back to his beloved islands of Polynesia. And then we get the author's note here. Um, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna read the author's note. I'll move on to the next section. And you know, I I can't believe that I just charged into this book uh, without uh, commenting on it. And maybe I could just I'll edit this and throw this into the intro, uh, but. Uh, just so you guys understand the context of what this book, He Walked the Americas, deals with, is the author, L. Taylor Hansen, 
has uh, reportedly gotten all this information from these different Native American tribes. And I have a lot of questions about this. You know, some people are claiming that this whole thing is just made up. That this this author just made up the whole thing. The the thing about that though is that I I and I scoured the internet and I looked all over and I can't find Native American groups and old chiefs and other and others who are like who are denying this. Uh, according to this, that you you're not gonna you go to these different tribes and you know we just did Polynesia and the next one is Peru, but you go to these these tribes that have the ancient stories still. Uh, you kind of have, they're not going to always just go give them to you. You kind of have to have, you know, insider connections. And again, I'm not seeing these different people groups that are talked about and you're going, no, that's not true. So, you know, I think there's probably a lot of uh, truth to this. And this is for each of you to decide for yourself. Um, I can't tell anybody here that what we're reading is legitimate. And of course, these are all oral traditions that are passed down. None of this was like... That, that to my knowledge was actually put into writing, right? So this is many, many centuries later, oral traditions passed down. And they all, the point is, as we go through this, is that they're all gonna connect with each other. We're gonna see some repeated uh, themes and other things. So on page 22, we're now in Peru. And this is called the Pale One. In the city of ancient glory, and this would be Pacacamac, Queen of the ocean, high upon the glittering temple built, they tell you, uh, tell you to the fish god. Stood he who is called Wakia by some, and by others, uh, Wako or Waco. His temple, built by the wealth of the ages, dated back so far into forgotten time that men no longer remembered its building. Now the long rays of the morning sunlight caught it up and dazzling splinter, lit its tires of jet, high polished, al uh, alternated with crested gold work, rising above the quiet city like a glorious pyramid mountain. So if I'm understanding this right, they built a pyramid to this Wakia uh, person. So that's interesting as we talked about like antique attack and other things like that. Upon the summit stood the pale one, beard and hair and robe gold tinted, and was the, as was the incense which swirled above him with its scent of burning cedar. Far below in the courtyard, mosaic and design of eternal beauty, the people danced in ceremony, ancient steps of intricate rhythm telling of their deep devotion. Beyond the courtyard stretched the city. The sun rays lit its whitewashed houses, its orchards, markets, parks, and causeways, reaching beyond the outmost dwelling and straight wide paved highways running to the four directions. At the docks were the ships of the traders, the long bossa ships which carried their pottery to Oaxaca and other ports far distant and traded their yams to Maori, or their gold work along the Atlantic from the coast of Cuba southward. The marketplace was still, though strewn about were clothes of cotton grown in color. Standing about the deserted market were long lines of laden llamas, either quiet or fearfully waiting. All spoke of an unexpected summons. 
At last he spoke. The master had a voice deeply resonant, like a golden stream outflowing. As I watched you, O oh my people, I thought again of how I landed upon your shores and came to the temple. The priesthood, crafty and deceitful, would have slain me for their idols, but they could not, and their knives fell from their fingers. I ordered the temple to be cleared of idols, and behold, the restless ocean arose and with foaming fingers cleansed the temple and left it shining. So is he describing like a like a giant wave that came in and just washed out the, the temple and cleansed it? I found you sinful and cunning warfare. I leave you peaceful and contented. I find you dealing in human slavery, or I found you dealing in human slavery. I leave you free. My well-trained priesthood will carry on all rites now for me. Baptismal, marriage, and the last interment all will go on. Why am I going? Why have I spoken so long to the traders? Why have I talked to the foreign merchants, speaking to each one in his own language? Because there are wild tribes in the jungles. They know not of the one great spirit who rules all men. They follow him not. They still wage warfare. Ah, my people, indeed, I love you. Yet if you had a herd of llamas upon a hillside and one little lamb fell into the canyon and into some brambles, would you not go down to save it, to comfort it, and still, and still it's crying? So I have to save my llamas, for this is my father's business. All right, next one, Brazil. He, he who is called, I guess, Waikano. Waikano. Here it is right here. He who is called, hopefully that goes in focus, Waikano. Page 24 if you need caught up. The diffusing light of golden yellow turns to green. The emerald green is the iridescent bird. I guess that's the... Uh, uh, Watzel, am I getting that right? Or uh, Quetzal? Sailing past in lazy circles, his regal tail floating behind him like the trailing robes of a monarch. The yellow green is of slimy water. The verdant green of leaf hung heavens filters down a jade pale sunlight to the reptilian greens of sinuous coils. This is the dank, warm jungle swarming with birds and brilliant insects in a riot of verdant colors. Up against the twisting tree trunk stands the council house of the chieftain, the longhouse, the log-built maloka brought, up, uh, brought to the north woods by invading, invading uh, I guess that would be Iroquois, and copied often by the pilgrims. This was shingled with heavy palm leaves. Seated just within the doorway, each upon his striped blanket, was a conclave of the nations. Before them stood the Holy Master, he who is called Waikano. And I remind you, this would, I think, be um, Waikano is also probably, well, we'll see if it's Wakia. Softly, the pale jade sunlight fell upon the white folds of his toga, slightly tinting his golden sandals. Yeah, same guy. His soft curled beard, his light brown tresses. For 12 moons have I walked among you. So for one year, while the sun swung around his circle, for, 
That's not a Copernican uh, reference right there. Uh, for 10 moons now, you have not battled nor taken human sacrifices. I brought you seeds and you have used them. Seeds for drugs and food and clothing, spices and the warm, sweet chocolate, as well as gourds for good containers. I taught you many ceremonies, baptismal rites, and sacred marriage. I leave behind those who can lead you, for I must go on to other nations. Then the leader arose and spoke. Dark is the sun, great Waikano. Dark our lives on the day you leave us, and our hearts shadowed with sorrow. Nay, grieve not, my faithful people. In my father's land, you will all have lodges. And beyond the veil, I await your coming. Return not to your ways of evil. I ask but this, your faithful promise. Hear this, O blessed master, so that our sons will never forget thee and forever keep thy teachings. We shall renounce the names we have carried, and to the eternity beyond tomorrow shall be known as the Waikanos, faithful followers of the master. The Waikanos are a non-Christian wild tribe from Mato Grosso. I'm going to put a little, little illustration picture of them there. All right, this, this next story takes place in Guatemala. It's called The Healer and the Tiger. Among the tall smoking volcanoes, among the mountains went the healer. Seeking out the ever-warring wild tribes, takers of men, the sacrificers, he brought them seeds and lectured to them, speaking of the one great spirit. So that just... To pause here we're going to see a lot about this one great spirit so it's really interesting that you know the native american groups they talk about this one great spirit right so according to this book this is where they would have learned it from they would have learned it from this the the healer who went all over the americas telling them about the great creator spirit and that he alone was to be worshipped once on entering such a village a little child came running to him crying its clothes were torn and its body bleeding, clawed by the sharp claws of the jaguar. He picked the child up and turning to the stream bed, knelt and washed away the bloodstains. The people following in consternation saw no more the marks of the tiger. The child was well and clean and smiling, but when he held the baby to them, the people backed away in terror. It is accursed, Balaam is angry. Nay, it is blessed, for I have blessed it. Then is the people still backed from him. Think you the anger of this creature is greater than my father's goodness? Your Balaam is not so powerful. He must be fed the blood of children. My father needs no man to feed him. Yet he gives plants to feed a mortal. Plant seeds I bring you that ye may flourish. But the very man he was rebuking pointed with trembling finger backward. And the healer turned to face the jaguar. Standing in the golden sunlight, half dapp uh, dappled in jade from the overhead branches, stood the tiger's silken body. I don't know why the author is going back and forth between a tiger and a jaguar, but it is what it is. It's lemon eyes upon the healer. 
gathering his robes about him and placing the child on the ground behind him, the pale one stepped toward the great cat and held his arm up in, in the peace sign. Maybe we'll find what the we'll find out what the peace sign is. Soft-footed chief, in thy jungle setting, come close to receive my father's blessing. Forgiven thou art for the pangs of thy hunger. Go and claw no more little children. Then the people, standing awestruck at the bravery of the healer, saw a heavenly miracle happen. For the tiger lay down before him and rolled cat-like to show its pleasure inviting the caress of those slim pale fingers the people watching fell down to worship to this day among the wild tribes within the canyons and the mountains of the land of guatemala the story that we have just read is often repeated it reminds me of the line laying with the lamb uh, that was promised in his holy mountain during the millennial kingdom all right this one is called this one is also from guatemala and it's called the priest of Ek Balaam. The pale wind went to Ek Balaam, whose location is no longer remembered. Here the priesthood of the tiger waited to deceive and kill him. So now, now they he, he's been turning heads, right? And we see that the the controllers, the people who realize they're losing their control, they're gonna want they're gonna want him dead. We will offer him, we will offer to him a captive. If he takes the sacrifice, then he is silenced, for he goes against all his teachings. Yet if he does not, we will declare him but man and kill him and break his body over the idol. Something tells me this is not going to end well for them. Along the highway to Ikbalim, capital of the sacrificers, came the healer receiving the plaudits of the people. They strewed his pathway thick with flowers. They brought to him their sick and injured. They cried his name. They touched his garments. Many were the mothers and fathers who held up their high their little children that they might look upon the pale one. Past the ball fields and the great parks, past the houses whitewashed neatly, past the well-kept gardens, past the markets and past all the business buildings with the sandals of the healer and behind him like a mighty torrent, running, pushing, jostling, shoving, came the multitude of the people. He thrust aside the jeweled gateway with a gesture of derision. The first of the mob now seemed reluctant for this was the courtyard of the bloody tiger. Yet the prophet had neither stopped nor looked behind him. And so like a dam that is shattered, the people burst in, in and swirled around him. Quietly, he walked on through them and ascended the dreaded stairway. Halfway up, he was met by the blood-smeared, black-robed high priest of the tiger. No man dares climb these steps of the blood god. Come you as man or a god from the great veil. I come to you in the name of my father, the one and only god of mankind. I bid you cease these sacrifices. Then you come as a God, and we welcome you as one. We bring unto you now a sacrifice to show you that we know you. Uh, so st uh, statuesque, the priest stood waiting. That's an interesting way to phrase it. They were still statues. Statuesque, the priest stood waiting. While the people in the courtyard held their breath, 
breath in mortal terror at the daring of the pale one. This was the signal for the priesthood to drag a chained captive forward, bidding him kneel before the healer. Before the priest could raise the knife to strike him, the pale one touched him and his chains were shattered. Arise, my friend, and join the people. The people stared as if in shock, but not the high priest. In a flash, he raised his knife blade and started toward the prophet, screaming, Thou art not God. You are a demon who fooled us. You cannot feed on lifeblood. You are but a man with human pity. Die as men die for the tiger. The pale one raised his palms before him, and the high priest saw in each one a large cross torn in the flesh. He stood as one transfixed. Why not strike down with the knife and kill me? Come now, you cannot. Why do you tremble? Then he turned and faced the people. Men of the Kichi, I bring to you a message from the God who has no image. He dwells beyond the rainbow. He lives in the lava, moves in the oceans, breathes in the wind storm, and made all things from ant to tiger. There are but two trails to follow. One is the way of my father, and one is the way of the jungle. You have chosen to follow the later, the latter. Think you so, uh, you know, in, in the Torah, you would he would say uh, you choose the blessing or the curse. Um, the early Christians had similar phrases. How they phrase? It. I think it was the. I think they said the way of the light and the way of the darkness. Think you there is power in that image? That rock has only the power that you give it. And whirling around, he picked up the now fallen long knife, the knife of sacrificing, and smashed it upon the face of the idol. That is how strong is your law of the jungle. The eats or be eaten, kill or be tortured. Death ends all, and so let us forget it and obey the law of our stomachs. You think of yourselves as strong men who crush and take from a weaker neighbor. Stop and look down the vistas of history. Where are the nations who live by the jungle? Where is the world encircling power of the serpents? It was crushed by the flood of my father's making. Where are your strong men who live by evil? They face judgment for breaking the great law of my father, greater than all earthly precepts. That law is this, love one another. That's a fascinating line there where he says, uh, where is the world encircling power of the serpents? And he says, that world was crushed by the flood of my father's making. I, I guess maybe, the, is that a reference to the watchers? The God of wind and water. So now we're in Mexico. One of the greatest miracles attributed to the prophet took place in Panuco, along the shores of the Sunrise Ocean. The healer knew that the legends told to the children about fighting animals were in truth the histories of the people, passed down thus through the generations. Only upon attaining manhood and the status of the warrior would the child learn the truth of these well-known stories. Often he had read these ancient histories and discussed them with the priesthood. Well, he knew that the name Serpent stood for the Earth's sea people who had once with their fleets ruled the oceans. 
and established colonies on many shorelines. Well, that's interesting. I'm going to read that again. Well, he knew, and this would be the prophet, that the name serpent, now that we see the worship of the serpent everywhere, right? Stood for the earth's sea people who had once with their fleets ruled the oceans and established colonies on many shorelines. Well, that's interesting. He knew that the word stood for water, even as did his first name, Waco. Wa, meaning water, and Ko for serpent. It was a tribute to his power over the ocean when at his command it had cleansed the temple at Paka Kamak. One of his favorite books was that ancient history which had come down to his time through many ages from the day when the red land which had fathered the serpents, their colonies and fleets of ocean-going vessels, went down in the fury of volcanic destruction into the cold green depths of the ocean. Okay, I know where this is going. Um, some people speculate that, uh, you know, this is a, a reference to Atlantis, definitely the pre-Diluvian uh, world. Proof that I am a serpent by the last remaining grandson to leave the doomed homeland with its eyewitness description by the young prince from the house of Volten was often read by the prophet. Yet closing its pages, he would warn the puzzled priesthood to copy it very often, sending it to many nations so that one copy might escape the flames from when he touched it. He, uh, for when he touched it, he saw its final destruction in a holocaust, which turned it to ashes. And then there's a note here by the author, it was burned by the conquering Spanish. So the story of the destruction of the old world and uh, the, the, a prince from the house of Votan who escaped it. Up to now, Great Serpent had been his only tithe or title because of his amazing power over water. In long forgotten ages, the islands of the serpents had been beset by another totem. These were the men of the wind god. They twined feathers in their hair and shot with bows and arrows against the poison lances of the serpents. Finally, this ability to kill at a distance overcame the proud sea kingdom already harassed by the fire god which it worshipped, and the victor was the bird of the lightnings, known around the world as the condor. Most deeply did the serpents respect him for his control of the mighty ocean, but the men of the bird of thunder and lightnings were skeptical of the power of the prophet. All that was, all that was changed in one day of terror and the low-lying land of Panuco. It was a sultry day, the air was heavy, and all the animals were taking cover. There was a feeling in the air of tense expectation as if something enormous was about to happen. Along the sea, the people were gathering, staring at each other with frightened faces. Last night, the giant condor was seen, the thunderbird who lives with the lightnings. He swooped very low and flew landward, warning us of the wind god's anger. Perhaps, craftily smiled one priest of the wind god, the great one called by us the breath master, resents the presence of the healer, known to have a power over water. Yes, perhaps that is true, murmured the people, shrinking away from the sight of the white robes as the healer and his priest came toward the seashore. 
Then out of the heavens came the giant condor, more than the height of two tall men from wingtip to wingtip, flying low to escape the whirling death storm and streaking rapidly up the river. Now, many people will speculate that this, they say a giant condor here, uh, but the that the the Thunderbird uh, was perhaps a ter uh, what we would call a pterodactyl, and of course, you know, there's 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 many, you know, many of us are questioning whether you know quote unquote dinosaurs existed, uh, which, to my knowledge, a pterodactyl is not necessarily one, uh, depending on how you define one. But I think that there is a lot of actually historical evidence for. Uh, these pterodactyls, and I actually think that they probably lived in Egypt at the time of uh, Moshe. Let's see. Uh, again, he comes. Let us fly to the great caves. Let us all run inward toward the safety of the jungles, away from the breathmaster's fury. All you who believe in the power of my father will remain with me, the prophet said softly, and nothing which comes from the air shall have power to harm you. So the people remained kneeling and praying as he had taught them. Also the skeptical priests of the wind god. Um, remained behind to watch this madman who dared to question the might of the death wind. Terror stricken from other encounters, but unable to lead away the people. Then at last all saw it coming like a giant black tail hung from the storm clouds. It swept toward them across the ocean, churning the waves into watery mountains as it crazily swung ever closer. When at last the first thrust of the great wind struck them, the healer stepped forward toward, towards it, raising both hands high above him so that all could see those strange palm markings, which some said stood for the four directions. In the name of my father who rules the heavens, Cease be the fury, calm be the waters, soft be thy breath as the breeze of springtime. Thou shalt but caress these people in the name of my father. Those watching stared in unbelief as the tail of the monster, the swirling death storm, withdrew into the heavens and the sun broke through the scattering dark clouds. Then all the people fell upon their faces, calling to him, Thou art. Uh, hur hurricane. It could be Hurricane, uh, but it's, you know, hur Hurricane. The Mighty. Thou art indeed the great wind master. Now we know that thou art the wind god. But the healer shook his head and told them, of myself I can do nothing. I pray you call me not the wind god. The power lies in the great spirit who rules both the wind and water. Yet still the people bowed before him, the hurricane, meaning the great storm, became his name throughout the broad land. And from this time on, among all the nations, he was known as the Lord of wind and water. This really tripped me out the first time I read it, because according to this, the modern word hurricane is another name for the prophet. That's just, that's crazy talk right there. All right, now we're moving on to the Yucatan. Uh, we're on page 35, if you need caught up. The land of the woman. After I take a drink of coffee here.
After his visit to the city of Ek Balaam, the healer went to the land of the woman. We shall find out soon enough what the land of the woman is. The queen of this land was lovely, cruel, and heartless with skin the color of old ivory and hair as blue as the wing of a raven. It reminds me of uh, the queen of uh, or Queen Calafia, but I don't think this is the same person. Her hands were as smooth as the skin of a baby. Okay. Uh, she had baby smooth skin. Yes, she ruled with a fist of iron, and there was none to gainsay her. When her scouts informed her that the great healer was coming, her eyes narrow narrowed, and her smile was that of the tigress. She's got the eye of the tiger. If we do not greet this stranger, she told her courtiers as she called them into council, the people may turn at last against us, for they think him divine. And as you know, they have named him, among other titles, the Lord of Wind and Water. On the other hand, if we do entertain him and allow him to fashion a temple, he may change our manner of living, or so devoutly win the people that they will no longer obey us. Therefore, we cannot entertain him. Then off with his head, shouted the courtiers. Nay, not so fast. It is said that none can touch him, for his eyes hold his enemies like one frozen in a trance. Then we will ambush him with arrows. Have you not forgotten something? At his wish, the wind and the air obey him. We still have another weapon. With poison lances, we shall spear him. You would use the serpent's weapon? Remember, he can walk on water. The courtier stood abashed before her. You know, this is really interesting because uh, if there is a connection here to Azazel being the serpent, they just said that they referred to these weapons as the serpents. And according to the Book of Enoch, it was Azazel that introduced weapons to humanity. So it's kind of interesting. You mean there is no way to kill him? There is one way which you have not mentioned. Oh, speak, oh, wise queen here. Uh, we shall invite him to the palace. As a prince, we shall entertain him. Then the night when he first eats at our table, he shall be given the seat of honor. Ah, the courtier's side in understanding. When he arises to speak unto us, she purred with the smile of the tigress. The guard at the door knows my signal. As usual, it is to be the clap of my two hands. That will signify the trap door is to be released. He will find himself in a dungeon. And from this one, and from this one, as you will know, no man in all of our history has ever come forth into the land of the living. Thus was it planned. And as the prophet entered the city, the adoring people rained flowers upon him. The army of the woman came forth to greet him and escorted him in splendor to the palace. He was given a room with a sunken tiled bath through which ran an unending stream of warmed and perfumed water. That sounds nice. And upon his sleeping couch, I wonder if I can get a hotel room like that uh, still to this day. In uh, what country are we in? Oh, the Yucatan. That sounds nice. I'll take a I'll take a, a sunken bath with like a unending fragrant stream of warm water coming through it. That sounds awesome. Um, and upon his sleeping couch were laid out for him fresh clean garments made by the loving hands of the people in anticipation of his coming. There were, there were always many to choose from whenever he came to another nation. That afternoon on the palace rooftop, as he came out to address the people, suddenly the mountain over the city began to belch dark smoke from its summit. The people turned their eyes wide with fear, whispering to one another, 
Why is the fire God angry? Is it because he comes among us? But the pale one, also watching the mountain, raised his arm in his sign of peaceful greeting. With soft words, he blessed the mountain. He spoke to the people of its beauty. With its hair of ice and its soft cloud blankets, he told them to fashion their lives in beauty so that when they came to the land of shadows, there would be no unhappy things to remember. That night, all went as planned at the banquet. The healer was given the seat of honor. No one seemed to notice that he spoke very little, that he toyed with his food, but did not eat it. And when at last the eating was finished with all the laughter and entertainment, the prophet arose and stared at the courtiers from face to face with the gray green eyes until the silence lengthened into unnaturalness. Then suddenly the woman arose, staring imperiously upon him. She clapped her ivory smooth hands and the prophet fell into the dungeon. Well, that's not good. Thus had spoken the woman. Then she laughed with high-pitched peals of laughter, which echoed throughout the palace, down the corridors lit by the swinging torches and up to the high-beamed ceiling. At first uneasy were the eyes of the courtiers. Then one by one they began to join her. Robustly the guards of her army left, and finally all the courtiers, but above them all laughed, above them all laughed the woman. Yea, thus had spoken the woman, then spoke the mountain. With a crash heard into the enemy kingdoms, the whole top of the mountain exploded. Gone was its headdress of ice-white feathers. Gone were the soft cloud blankets. And as the tiger shakes the monkey, so the mountain shook the city. Within the palace, which had rung with laughter but a breath before the explosion, the great walls swayed and crumbled. Sputtering fireflies, the torches flew into the rubble of cement and stucco. Down came the beams on the banquet table, crushing the wildly screaming courtiers, clinging insanely to one another, even as gophers are crushed when Condora, the lightning, crashes down a forest monarch under whose roots had been their runways. Only two escaped, a guard and the woman. Where one torch still was crazily swinging, she ran down the corridor screaming. Following her came the long shrieks of horror of the dying. Above the fury of the mountain and the crash of falling rock and stucco was heard that hideous prelude of death. Into the streets tumbled the people. There they saw two single figures. One was the prophet, standing bareheaded and gazing quietly toward the mountain. The other was a guard from the palace, injured and burned from those moments of terror, crawling abjectly toward the healer, babbling out an inco incoherent story and pointing toward the ruins of the palace. Into the street staggered the people, carrying their injured and crying children, gazing in unbelief at the mountain, a flaming torch against the heavens, lighting the city like a red sun or a monstrous fiery fountain, flinging upward stars of fury which dance grotesquely about the about the crimson moon and returned to earth in a blazing curtain. On the ruins of the palace stood the pale one, his robe untouched by the rain of cinders. Then he waved the people toward him and churning walked away from the city, 
clinging to each other, they followed, stumbling through the thickening fog of ashes. All night they walked away from the mountain, resting but once to crowd around him, while he healed their wounds and, stro and stroked the burned ones, making whole the flesh beneath his fingers. Then on again to the land of Panuco, near a mighty river, where they stopped and built another city. Here a great pyramid temple was dedicated to the prophet and the mountain. Isn't that an interesting thought if the, if the pyramids of South America were actually built and or dedicated to uh, Yahushua HaMashiach at one time? It's crazy to think about. To this day in the land of Panuco, one can still hear the legend of how the healer came to the land of the woman and was saved from death by the flaming mountain. The place of destruction is called the land of the red moon, and the ruins are untouched by the spades of strangers. If one is trusted by the people, they will tell a curious t story. When the moon is full, say the people, strange, strange things happen at the palace of destruction. Strangers who go there and stay through the night, when the moon lights up the desolation, swear they can look into the palace. There a torch is crazily swinging as if still heaving from an earthquake. And a woman is heard madly running, followed by wild peals of laughter, which re-echo throughout the ruined city, ending in stricken shrieks of horror. No stranger will stay there more than one night, and they always hurriedly leave the country. Is there anyone who will confirm the story? No, for not one of the people could be induced by gifts or money to lead a party to the palace of destruction when the moon is full and the woman is laughing. So perhaps even the location has been forgotten down through these many ages. I will read this author note here. It says, of the two versions of this legend, so th this author was able to find, you know, two of them. That's kind of interesting. So one that the woman was banished to the land of the red moon where she became insane seems more garbled and less complete in its story. Therefore, this version, which explains the name uh, land of the red moon seems more logical and was the one chosen to be included in this book. All right, we're on page 41 if you need caught up. The next one takes place in Georgia. Not the state of Georgia. The Thanksgiving ceremony. In the land of Panuco, I think, uh, I guess I'm not up to date on my geography. I'm guessing we're still in Mexico, Yucatan Peninsula right there. I don't know where historical Georgia would be there. In the land of Panuco, which shortened from the longer name of the ancient means, the place where the serpents landed when they fled from burning pan. Well, that's interesting. A lot of serpent fleeing in this. The healer met many merchants and saw olden cities, some still living and some in ruins. Nearly was fabulously old was uh, 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 Wababa, now rapidly crumbling into the ocean. Into these ports came the traders who brought the copper down from the Northland, Lake Superior, that Authors note their Lake Superior to the Southern Sea and the Sunrise Ocean. From them, he learned their language and soon won an invitation to ride into the Puan cities. 
From their name, he knew these people to be a lost colony from Pan, the sunken red land, and he was most anxious to meet them. These ships of the traders were made from a great log, uh, slowly hollowed out by a fire and patient shipping until they could hold many rowers. Even into the time of the white man have come these fleets of the traders, as Father Mercier in his travels with the explorers has so faithfully described them. Thus the Gila rode northward to an extensive city in the land now known as Georgia. Okay, so maybe this is the land of Georgia. So it's in the land now known as Georgia. Um, it once had a name which was changed to Isikowa, which means the Lord of Wind and Water. Famous all over the Americas now was the Mighty Master. And so he's all he's known all through North America now. He's probably South America. He's, he's known everywhere. And the people came from many miles away to see him, strewing his pathway with fragrant blossoms. Here he built a pyramid temple. Wow, he's building pyramids everywhere. With painted logs, as was the Puan custom, and dedicated to our father, the Great Spirit. When he saw that the people were in a hurry to finish it, he inquired the reason and learned that a great ceremony. Makes you wonder about the... Um, it seems like, according to this, that it, it gives more credence to the idea that Seth, uh, the son of Adam, actually built the Great Pyramids in uh, what we know as Egypt before the flood and finishing it afterwards. Okay, when he saw that the people were in a hurry to finish it, he inquired the reason and learned that a great ceremony was coming called the Thanksgiving Ceremony. Concerning this, the prophet was puzzled, surrounding himself with his usual disciples, 12 in number, thus with himself making 13. So I don't know if these are the same 12 disciples that we see in, in the Gospels, or if I'm, I'm assuming, maybe this will be answered later, I'm assuming that these 12 are those who he chose from the, the Mexicans, the Oaxacans, the Yucatan Peninsula, the, uh, you know, so, so on and so forth. The Dawn Star's number, uh, he inquired about the ceremony which the people wished to remember. It is the same, he asked, as the one at Panuco. They too have a Thanksgiving ceremony, only it takes place a moon later. Yes, it is the same. It celebrates the safe arrival of Votan from the burning red land. His fleet came first to Massachusetts, and they celebrate a moon earlier. I would hear more of the story. Well, it is said that when the young prince of the house of Votan, with his large fleet, first touched the firm earth, all did kneel and kiss the sweet ground with the grass growing on it, and send up a prayer of thanksgiving. Since that time, each place which the fleet touched in turn has its thanksgiving ceremony. Hmm. And during the feast which follows, we eat of the plants which he brought with him. We eat the corn, beans, and red tomatoes, the squash, and mashed potatoes. We have melons with rich, ripe strawberries and other berries. We drink of the delicious chocolate. For meat, we have the deer, buffalo, or the bird called turkey, turkey, turkey. For all these came from the old red land, now long lost in the floods of the great destruction. So... Interesting, everything they mention here is a clean animal, deer, buffalo, uh, and a turkey. And to point out that uh, the, 
they mentioned he mentioned Matt uh, the the writer mentioned Massachusetts in here. That's so it's almost like we're seeing like Plymouth Rock is a is a repeat of whatever this Thanksgiving ceremony is that was done by the Prince of the House of Voten, who escaped. They say it's a fleet of ships. Um, I, I'm wondering if this is the same character as Noah, because the the prophet seems really big on on this individual and what legends they have to say about him. Um, that he had like a big Thanksgiving feast afterwards. So I don't know. Hopefully you guys are enjoying this. I'm finding this really fascinating. When the prophet learned of this, he gave the right his blessing and made it one of the feasts of the temple, thus making the people very happy, for they thought of Pan as their ancient homeland. All right. The prophet first sees the future. Uh-oh. It was during this rite of dedication of the Pyramid Temple in the place now called Etowah, Georgia, that the prophet first mentioned the future. Standing high above the people and staring off to the horizon after his dedication speech had been finished, once more he started speaking. Afar off through time, my spirit is walking down the cycles of the future. I see the armies of the serpents moving northward from their cities, being driven out by bloody warfare. These ancient worshipers of the fire have returned to the ways of their fathers and once more are sacrificing to idols. They are coming up the river, the serpents led by the turtle. The Puan people will move northward in an uneasy peace show for some time follow, but a civil war will break out among them. Now, if you could only convert these people once more to the peace religion of the one God, and also those who are coming down from the northward along the Sunset Ocean. And then what follows might be different, but I fear that you cannot. Civil war becomes anarchy, and each city takes to the forest, joining in tribes for senseless warfare. Remember this and tell your children, woe follows this unhappy decision. Farther off, there is another invasion. In ships, many bearded men are coming from across the Sunrise Ocean. Many are the ships as the snowflakes of winter. I see these men taking the broad land and the mounds which hold the crest of our cities are for them, alas, but earth for the taking. They do not respect our trees of cedar. They are but hungry, unenlightened children and with them, the vision closes. If you guys know, you know my, my perspective on that is what he's describing is, the, what I put on my on the timeline, the end of the millennial kingdom, when the you know in the 1500s into the 1600s, when the uh, you have the the conquistadors and you have the the, the British, the the uh, the, uh, the the French, the the Spanish, and so on and so forth, they're all coming over, uh, destroying the land, cutting down the trees, taking over the the villages, the cities, all that kind of stuff, destroying the heritage, and you guys know the rest of it. And he seems to be saying here that this is like a result of them turning from the true faith. Like they, they have turned from it, they've returned to the old ways, and now they're being destroyed. Would, uh, would that I could reach those war-hungry serpents. Would that I could speak to those bearded farmers. I have tried. They do not hear me. They go on their way like spoiled, spoiled children while I return to you in the present here at the temple at E.C. Kowa. Many southern tribes now in Oklahoma, 
with the mingled heritage of both Puan and Serpent. Still remember this prediction first spoken at the temple in Georgia, so long ago in times long vanished. Chokta, Cherokee, Chicksaw, and Creek, do your children still remember? Or have the old chants been forgotten as they have among so many others? All right, we're up in uh, North America now. So the next one stems from Oklahoma. I'll just show you this right here. Hold it up. And it's called the Golden Rule. Given by the prophet to the Shawnee people. Page 45 if you need caught up. Do not kill or injure your neighbor, for it is not he that you injure. You injure yourself. Do good to him, thus adding to his days of happiness, even as you then add to your own. Do not wrong or hate your neighbor, for it is not he that you wrong. You wrong yourself. Rather, love him, for the great spirit loves him, even as he loves you. So this is called the traditional chant of the prophet given to the Shawnee. All right, now we're moving up to West Virginia. Right here. West Virginia. It's called the Lost Fawn. One of the most charming of all the prophet legends is that told by the Cherokee Nation. Once as the healer walked in the forest deeply troubled by thoughts of the future, he came upon a fawn in a pool of moonlight. Its coat was blue and silver, its legs were weak, for it was hungry and it could not find its mother. The healer spoke to it, silver-flecked babe of the forest, where is thy mother? Which path did she take when she left thee? The forest child looked at him sadly, then turned toward a dim path. Unhesitatingly, uh, yeah, unhesitatingly, the great man followed. Not far away they came to a, a bower, and there among the leaves lay the mother. She had been clawed unmerciful, unmercifully by the tiger. But in leading away the huge cat, she had saved the forest infant. The healer knelt, gently stroked her torn and bleeding body, until at last she stood erect beside him. His disciples who had been following him at a distance so that no harm would come to him, saw the miracle happen. They stopped and stared with eyes unbelieving as the doe nuzzled her fawn. Art thou not afraid, his disciples said to him, that using thy power on the animal kingdom, someday it shall all be gone when most you desire it? Nay, smiled the pale one, there cannot be too many good deeds. Such is the manner of compassion. A lost lamb is my father's business, and important is saving a nation, if one need not choose between them. More precious is my father's eyes, or more precious in my father's eyes, is a good deed than the most exquisite jewel. His disciples knelt to touch his white robe, where the dark crosses stood out in the moonlight. The prophet tells of his birth. The sandals of the prophet carried him to a city whose name has vanished in the dust of other ages. Today, the name of Oklahoma 
So it's interesting here. They're talking about all these cities, right? There's cities all across North America. This isn't like describing like people living in tents, at least not at this time. Today, the name of Oklahoma translated from the native language means the land of the red man. Here was a large Puant city whose crest showed an interesting history. And to this metropolis came the healer. Here he once more changed the temples, chose from the priesthood his 12 disciples and lectured to all the people. So here we see him handing over and getting 12 new disciples. Here he was asked by his priesthood to speak to them of his childhood. And in some of the legends, we have some interesting comments. He told them that he was born across the ocean in a land where all men were bearded. And remember now he came in a fleet of three ships that all the men that they were bearded. In this land, he was born of a virgin on a night when a bright star came out of the heavens and stood over the city. Here too, the heavens opened and down came winged beings singing chants of exquisite beauty. When the University of Oklahoma was digging in this spiral mound, much pottery was discovered which showed winged beings singing. And here was also the hand with the cross through the palm about which the professors were deeply puzzled and still have no explanation as they stare at these things in their museums. About the campfires of the ancients, the tales of the prophet are secret. For the benefit of their youth, they chant the stories of long ages ago when they lived in cities and of a sainted healer who came and lived among them. To them, he was known as Jesus, the dawn god. Now, this is where I throw up a red flag. And I told you guys at the beginning that, um, you know, there's some in here. This is one of those where I'm like, I don't know about this. Now, you know, Jesus, right? Jesus. Now, meaning the dawn God. Now, the thing about this is, is that the J sound, you guys know this. I mean, the J, it's a, what, 500 years old, 500 years old Jesus. Before that was Jesus. So the fact that, you know, that the writer of this book and, you know, claims that the, these stories are at least a couple thousand years old. So, I mean, he's really ahead of the game here. If he's going by Jesus or something close to it among the Native Americans, and they're not even calling him that in Europe yet. So uh, that's one of the red flags here. Let's see this. I'm going to show this picture for those of you following along on the internet, YouTube, a piece of pottery found in the spiral man showing a winged being seeing uh winged being singing so let's see if you guys can see that right there that focuses in uh that piece of pottery there we see you know clearly looks like an angel with wings okay to them he was known as jesus the dawn god and they whisper of him about the campfires on uh, winter evenings when no white man can listen they love the bear to, to the, the the love they bear him is beyond measurements, for well they know he watches over them, and that when their journey here is over, he will meet them in the land of shadows, for such was his sacred promise. They smoke the sacred peace pipe in his memory, and blow the smoke to the four directions, knowing that to each man comes his retribution, no matter how flows the river of history. I'd like to learn more about the, this land of shadows. Um, if this is talking about Sheol or 
a place on the earth. I'd like to you know learn a little bit more about that. Thus in great pride walks the red man, even though now dire poverty stalks him and starvation or hunger sits at his table. In the mask-like calm of his expression, there smiles a secret satisfaction, a something which to puzzled white men is entirely beyond understanding. Okay, the next one, I need to take a quick little coffee break here and you fill up. The next one comes to us from Mississippi, the state of Mississippi. Perhaps, oh, this is called background knowledge, page 50 if you need caught up. Perhaps Egypt knew of them as the Philistines invading from the mighty Atlantic, once called people of the ocean. Perhaps they were welcomed by the Norsemen who had known them as traitors and who adopted some of their legends. Perhaps some of their words still linger among the Basques and Finns of the Northland, both now an ancient islanded language. Yet the mighty invasion of the serpents fleeing from the great destruction washed the shores of the American tropics, breaking into small lost families, each known under its leader as a great son, whose throne went always down through the women. All counted their time by the cycles of Venus, star of both the dawn and evening. At the end of the 104-year cycle, and sometimes at the 52-year half cycle, their great sons met in giant conclave to check their time and pool their knowledge. That was really wordy. If you can't follow that, then I apologize. Uh, it, you know, obviously they're pulling this from information. It's like, uh, from the snows of the north to the snows of the southland, they came to pool geograph geographical knowledge. And because he who was known as the healer seemed greatly to revere the dawn star, the serpents regarded him as holy, and they were ordered not to harm him. Perhaps in the days of the prophet, serpent tribe had not yet fought against serpent as they did through the later ages. For the region of the Mississippi during the golden days of the healer, De Dakota paints us a fairly clear picture. Those we now call the great mound builders were tribes speaking the word family and branches of the Algonquin language. These were the ancients of the country. In the days of the great mound builders, these mounds marked the sites of the cities. The mounds were a sort of writing, a manner of recording passing history, a royal marriage, a dynasty ended. They were to be read from the inside outward, and about them swirled the cities. One had an even longer story than the modern town of London. The mounds were probably faced with lumber and then painted in brilliant color, perhaps to resemble those of the Mayans and whom they seem to have some commerce. In fact, that commerce may have been extensive since there was much uh, mining in Michigan. To this happy and peaceful land came the great white robed master with his sea gray eyes and his golden sandals. Here too, we find the only relics probably touched by his hands or possibly fashioned under his personal direction. In the spiral mound in Oklahoma, 
opened carefully in the pr uh, practice manner of all university excavations, was found the symbol of the hand with the great T cross through its center. I was wondering if they have an illustration of this here. There also uh, there has also been recovered much pottery with winged beings, not unlike the angels singing, which I showed you a few minutes ago. In the Indian Mount of Pittsfield was found three pages of parchment now held in Old Harvard, upon which were quotations from the Old Testament written in archaic Hebrew. I would like to find a second witness on that. Uh, have you guys heard anything about that? I mean, I know we found some Hebrew writing um, in it was Arizona, New Mexico area, uh, but something like this um, would easily go missing, and uh, I wouldn't doubt it if they found some uh, some uh, you know Old Testament quotations written in Hebrew in the Mississippi region. Uh, but that would be quite the news, wouldn't it, if it got out? About eight miles southeast of Newark, the father of Bancroft. Indian recorder of untold legends speaks of finding the only engraved stone pictograph of the white robed teacher. About his head in ancient Hebrew were the words of the Ten Commandments. Well, I just, uh, I just uh, talked about that, didn't I? And uh, the the he the ancient Hebrew that uh, the words of the Ten Commandments. So according to this. The stone pictograph, uh, it was engraved by the white robe teacher himself. That's news to me. I've never heard that before. His hair and beard are well pictured as well as his flowing toga. It was a small stone, highly polished, an inch and a half thick, eight inches long, four inches on one end to three on the other. This had been placed in a casket completely watertight. And many feet above it was the burial of the Indian high priest. How many other mounds had been plowed and leveled and their contents scattered, which the red men held as holy, planting trees of the sacred cedar upon them to keep them safe through two millennia. True, the invasion of the serpents from, the, from perhaps 700 AD onward, coming up the Mississippi in their long snake-painted dugouts, carrying their sacred fire, brought an end to peaceful living brought with them war and pillage and the priesthood of the sa uh, sacrificers, yet they turned away from the hills of cedar, seeing the symbols of the healer. All right, next section is called Random Memories. These are a series of memories, a word or two dropped in passing. The Pawnee remember the prophet who came and taught them of his father, the mighty holy of the heavens. He told them not to forsake his precepts. And when they returned again to warfare, they thought often of his, of his predirections, of how war but breeds more carnage. Even then he foretold the coming of white man. The Pawnee remember him as Paruksti and his father as uh, Turawa. Ter that's T-I-R-A-W-A. -A. They know that they discovered him and they prayed to him in English. They, the uh, Algonquin of the Eastern Seaboard, when asked how they got their name for the dawn light, say that it was the name of the Pale One. They would not give him their own name as he had asked them, for to him names meant nothing and he allowed each tribe to name him. They asked instead his name in childhood when he lived across the ocean. There's 
put another red flag on this one right here. The name he gave them was a strange one, hard to say in their liquid language. Can you guys guess what it is? Uh, it's not Yeshua. It's not Yehusha or Yehushua. So today they try hard to say it, Jesus, God of the dawn light. Obviously, he was not called Jesus or, G or Jesus in the first century AD. The Algonquin of the Great Lakes remember well the pale great master. The Chippewa say he gave them many medicine lodges whose signs and symbols are secret, fashioned from those across the ocean, and even today they hold this secret knowledge. Even the proud Dakota, they of the turtle totem, leading north the line of serpents in their age-old migration, recall in long-lost adoration the sacred name of the pale-faced healer. It was long ago that we knew him. He gave to us a rite of baptism, many of our lodges, and our rites of purification. When he came to us, the days were warmer, the sun cast down shorter shadows. Well do we remember how he foretold the coming of white man, and other uh, pre-directions. We have backslid from his teachings, but to him we dance the sun dance. We remember great Wakana well. Here is one, another going back to uh, the state of Mississippi. The prophet makes a second visit to the Pawnee. Many tribes ha have tales of the healer and how at one time he came among them. Few did he miss, no matter how distant or poor, or lost in the ways of other religions. But to the Pawnee he came twice, the last time in anger. The prophet had gone westward to that place we call Oklahoma, where the uh, uh, Puants had a thriving city, and there he was busy erecting temples and instructing a priesthood. Some wild young braves among the uh, Pawnee, who today are known as the Pawnee, formed a secret league to prey on the country, to make themselves rich by attacking the merchants and returning to the old war religion. The merchants thus captured, uh, they would give to the fire god, who would protect them, said the young men. Accordingly, one night the Pawnee waited in a glen of the Mississippi where the fleet came to camp and rest on its long journey from the southern sea to the capital city. Quietly flowing was the father of waters, when to the glen came the long ships of the merchants to discharge the weary rowers for a good night's sleep in the four shadows. They suspected no mischief and no watch was placed over the campsite since the Puans had long been at peace. They laughed and joked as they built a campfire and in noisy fun cooked their dinner. Then came the time of conversation, of remembering the long trip, small talk of girls in distant cities, of the customs of other nations and of the man in the flowing white mantle, of whom there was great awe for the miracles he had accomplished. One youth was a skeptic. It is strange that we always seem to miss him. The young man sighed, for I would like to see him this creature that we call the dawn god, and others the lord of wind and water. Then the talk became hushed, and the head man prepared the tobacco, starting the smoke himself by breathing it to the four directions, taking a few deep puffs of satisfaction before passing it onward to the man to his right in the circle. At last, 
Each got out his blankets, wove a bed of branches for comfort, and rolling tightly in the blankets was soon asleep beside the low fire. Then with the yells of Skiri, the gray wolf, the wild Pawnee leapt upon them, snatching from sound sleep their surprised prisoners, now forced to carry their own trade goods back to the camp of the bandits. That was a mad night for the Pawnee, leaping and yelling in the firelight as they uh, staked out two men for the fire death, for sacrifices to the fire god. Savage was the untamed dancing as they lit the flames about the Puans. Only one old man protested. He pointed to the east where the star of the morning was rising, but the young men paid no attention. Who cared about the star of the morning? No one but the one they had called the healer when first he had come to see them. But now the, that one was far away. His magic was weak here as they chanted the wolf song. Laughingly, they pointed at the prisoners where one was dead and another dying. Let him come and revive these men. That would be much better magic than stopping a windstorm or walking on water. Then a fire lit up the east sky where cloud banks had been piled up and everyone turned in wonder at consternation, hushed the chanting. Suddenly, he was there among them, like a creature from another planet. Ugh, nice description, writer, or author. Like a creature from another wandering star. Shining with a, or, you know, says your planet, shining with a strange radiance, each hair of his head luminescent a weird glow rippling from his garments and his sea eyes flashing with lightning. He stood staring at the Pawnee people. Is this the way you keep my commandments? Is this the manner of your insult to the spirit called tur I come to shield you from his anger, or lo, great wind would ignite the forest, and to ashes would be consigned the Pawnee nation. While the Pawnee stared at him as a frozen, a weak voice cried from the fire, Chizus, master, from these flames, release me. The healer turned and looked at the tortured man. You are free, my son. Walk away from the fire. The burned, the burned one moved and the chains fell from him. Then he staggered toward the healer, falling and clutching the hem of the white robe embroidered with its line of crosses. Those who watched saw a miracle happen. I wonder if these, uh, these line of crosses are the, the Tav. Those who watched saw a miracle happen, one which they had said could not happen, for the man straightened up without a blemish. Nor was all over, for toward the dead man moved the prophet. Arise, another day is dawning. Thou art not yet for the land of shadows. Arise and return to the land of the living. The fire died away, and the blackened corpse stirred and lifted its head and its burned arms. Arise, my son, no chains are on thee. Come toward me and be made whole in body, for such this day is the will of my father. The man arose and left the dark flames, staring at his good flesh with eyes unbelieving, murmuring over and over, to think that I had questioned thy power. Forgive, my master, an unbeliever. Sealed were the lips of the Pawnee people, with both shame and the terror of a child lost and bewildered. Yet down through the ages has come the story, and sometimes the, the old ones repeat it on winter evenings beside the campfire, the legend of the son of mighty Turawa, 
who came back in anger on a shaft of the dawn light, and by his presence saved from extinction the entire Pawnee nation. So the, the author note here, it says, Chizus was the Puan name for the dawn god. The Pawnee have a different name for him uh, from the author. All right. I'll, I'll see how long I can read before my voice gives out. This one comes from Missouri. Anybody here from Missouri tonight? The healer travels to the Puant Nation in Missouri. From uh, Kuwa to the place where now is St. Louis. In the fleets of the merchants went the healer to the capital city of the Puant Nation. That's interesting. Is, is Are they saying that St. Louis, and the place we now call St. Louis, was the capital city? Spread across the Mississippi at the entrance of the Missouri lay the shining Puant capital. Its boulevards radiated outward like the spokes of a giant wheel. From the central hub where were the crest mounds. These had been built from the center outward and recorded the ages of Puant history. Is this saying that there was a massive city where St. Louis is now? I mean, you guys know about like the St. Louis World Fair. Um, I'm finding that city on old maps. Uh, you know, I think it's a very old city. Now, clearly the, the World Fair city might not be this city. I mean, that could have been built at a later time in history because we really don't have good bearings on when this, this story is taking place. When a dynasty has been completed and a calendar period ended, the artifacts of the period, the significant facts pictured on pottery were placed within and the crest was closed with, with a mound of extinction. Henceforth, this one was not to be reopened and beyond it in the world of the wind god running counterclockwise was begun a new crest for the new period. On the old crest stood the capital buildings, built of great logs and beautifully painted, as was Puant custom. On the sides of the crest were earth-hugging strawberry carpets, mosaiced and bordered with garlands of flowers. The same carpets flowed about the dwellings of the people, circular after the ways of the wind god. Many crests had been closed at the time of the prophet, and the capital city was large, for this was a great trading empire. There were four roads of commerce, up and down the mighty rivers to the east across the mountains, to the fleets which moved along the shores of the Sunrise Ocean, west on the highway to Tula, capital city of the Toltecs. Many were the goods which were carried outward, hides from the herds of deer and buffalo, sometimes embroidered with colored quills, or the porcu uh, were colored with, it's getting late, with colored quills of the porcupine, carved ivory from the Northland, baskets fashioned from white birch bark, and decorated with quill work, and of course the red gold copper mine by the Puant Nation, as well as many other goods for trading. The Puants were very careful of their, of their planet heritage. You gotta love the author here very much into, uh, into that. Can you blame her though? Never was a cow with young taken and the finest bulls were always protected. The same was true of the primeval forest. 
all fires were ceremonially extinguished and in the most efficient manner, while suitable trees were ceremonially scouted for long boat construction. Unforgotten today in Algonquin legends is the time of the prophet's coming, or how the fleets ceremoniously bore him, and how he was always greeted with flowers. If the white man never hears these legends, then he doesn't really know the people. For a few still live in the time of their greatness, but alas, if they meet opposition or ridicule from the listener, the chant will stop, and the recorder's silence will end the story, perhaps even into the land of shadows. All right, this next one comes from New York. I think it's called The Seneca Legend. Maybe I'll make it to Michigan tonight. Yeah, I'll try to get through Michigan, and then we'll end it there. Once while in the capital city, the prophet heard tales of the Sunrise Ocean and the five tribes of warring nations. Keep in mind, this is a New York state. At once, he expressed a desire to see them, for much opposed to war was the heather. So he went forth with the merchants across the mighty... Uh, as uh, Alec Hennies, the pale god, came to the Seneca nation. There he called the chieftains into council. Long he spoke to them on the ways of his father, as he had throughout the broad land, handling the language with great ease. He explained his peace religion. Then he asked of them quite simply, what was the reason for their warfare? The fire chieftains were embarrassed, for they had long forgotten the reason, if indeed they, they ever had a reason. Each warrior looked upon the other, and none could think of a valid answer. Therefore, he bound them ceremonially into a never-ending alliance. To each, he gave a sacred duty to perform for the alliance, and then he asked them to smoke the peace pipe filled with tobacco and cedar shavings, and to blow the smoke to the four directions, making the sign of the great cross, which is a holy symbol. Never from that time onward have the five nations fought each other, nor has the trust he gave them been cracked and broken. At this council was a Seneca chieftain who was tall, for he was a tall, uh, for we are a tall nation. Like many of our people, he had a lofty stature and could easily look down on the heads of the others. Indeed, the prophet was not a short man, but neither was he as tall as the chieftain. The Seneca, seeing that he was the tallest, and could look over the light hair of the pale god, rose and waited to speak. There was a shocked silence. Would he presume to question the prophet? The chieftain looked upon the healer. I have been watching you while you were speaking out, O oh, one whom the people call the dawn god. It is true that you have a most strange fascination over the minds of men. I know that the people call you the dawn god. If it is true, then you can prove it. Meet me here in four days in the early morning before the sun has shot his first long red arrow, and we shall stand before this door together. If the first red arrow of the dawn light touches your hair before it paints my eagle feather, then indeed you are the dawn god. This I give to you as a challenge. Now for this day I have spoken. Everyone turned to look at the prophet. He sat quite still as if in deep thought. At last he arose. Your stand is well taken. 
I will meet you here before the dawning. When from the sunrise ocean arises the golden light of the dawn star, I will be standing here before the great lodge. I will use up the moments of waiting to talk once more with the people, all who would care to hear me. For now, I too have spoken. During the four days, the healer went among the tribes, and though he did not speak of his appointment, uh, there's a picture here of a guy named Chief of Big Tree. I'll just show you this right there, Chief Big Tree. Let's see if he comes into this. Everyone knew that he would keep it, for the Great One never broke a promise. Accordingly, at the time appointed, great crowds swarmed about the small mound where the great lodge stood open to the eastward. First to climb the mound was the prophet. As over the horizon arose the first golden shafts of the dawn star, the pale god spoke to the assembled nations. It is said that he always charmed his listeners, but now there was almost a breathless silence. Indeed, it seemed the very trees were listening, and also the assembled animals in the forest. So softly he spoke, and so well did they hear him, because of the silence that had settled. Now the tall chieftain left the others and slowly climbed the small mound, taking his place beside the prophet. The two eagle feathers in the hair of the chieftain projected well above the head of the healer, but no sign except a friendly greeting was given by the pale Kiawash. Uh, Kiawasa, who turned and began the chants of the dawning. This was a prayer chant he had taught the people, which has long since been forgotten. Everyone started to join in, and then suddenly a miracle happened. Before anyone saw, else saw the sunlight, a golden shaft of radiant beauty came down from some clouds banked high with firelight and touched the curling hair of the prophet diffusing itself like a halo until he stood, a luminous creature painting all the ground around him with gold. The people then fell down saying, behold, he is indeed the dawn God who has come to walk among us and he draws his power from the star of the dawning. The tall chieftain seeing the great one clothed in gold light knelt in the dust beside him and taking the hem of the prophet's mantle laid his cheek on the line of cresses. I know that you think this sounds something like the legend of uh, Hiawatha, uh, Hiawatha, written down by Longfellow, the poet. You are right. There is a resemblance. Once he was our guest and heard us chanting. He liked our story so well that he kept urging us onward through his interpreter of the language. We told him many stories. When he returned and began to write them, he mixed them all together. But he was not trying to make fun of our legends. He was confused. We still honor him for enjoying the chants and even trying to get the rhythm of their language. We honor him, although Hiawasa never sought a Dakota maiden. That was a much later hero who married with a distant nation. The meaning of Hiawasa, it is he from afar off. It is our name for the prophet who drew his great strength from the dawn star. All nations know he was of the dawn star, and that is why even now, no nation of the ancient people known as redskins will ever make war or fight a battle while the sacred star of peace is still shining in the great heavens. They dare not, for it is the star of the prophet. Okay, so 
I get the person who told this last story. It was all in quotes. It was uh, Chief Big Tree right there. Uh, told this to the the author, and this is the author's note. I no longer know where know where to reach Big Tree. The uh, or even if he is alive, he once told this legend to a child to illustrate the fact that the tallest men are not always the greatest. I hope that he will not mind its inclusion here. Since there is a variation of this legend in Bancroft, recorded over 100 years ago, it seems to be quite authentic to Seneca tradition. All right. I am, I'm going to end it there. Um, that's a good place. I am running out of uh, voice, and uh, my eyes are not as strong as they should be tonight. So uh, anyways, that was, uh, hopefully you guys found that as fascinating as I did. He walked the Americas, as I pointed out. I wish I had a PDF that we could follow along so you guys can, uh, people could read along with the screen. Hopefully people were able to listen to my uh, my reading skills and hopefully I also didn't butcher too much. Um, and take it for what it is. Now, we're gonna, I think the best thing to do is I'm going to end it here in the uh, on the TUC stage, and we're going to go over to the uh, the general voice chat. And I'd like to hear your guys' thoughts on this. Uh, unfortunately, uh, it won't be recorded over there, um, so it'll be off recording, and you guys can. Uh, but I would like to hear you know hear what you guys have to say for for the video. It is what it is. So we'll just end it here, and um, we'll go over there and talk. See you guys over there.